0: Good morning, Georgetown Christian. Hey, it's so great to be with you guys this morning as we open God's Word to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Hey, uh, so many of you guys have prayed for um, my Grandma Pat, and I thank you so much for your prayers for her. Um, Every prayer has been answered. She has joined the church triumphant. Uh, So many of you knew her as a, a super faithful grandmother, and she was, in every sense of the word, very faithful. So, I will not give you the full funeral sermon this morning, but I wanted to tell you that she uh she just like I said, every prayer was answered she got to she got to go home, she got to be surrounded by her family, she got to have full time hospice care, and those of you that have walked with a loved one or friend through those last moments know how important hospice is um, so she was in no pain at all, and she got to die peacefully in her sleep so I just couldn't be more grateful for your prayers. So on behalf of my family and like a whole town here loses someone uh, that they all love, my whole hometown is so grateful for all of your prayers. Um, she has gone to be with the Lord and we'll celebrate her life later this week sometime. So thank you again for your prayers. Um, I, I have this picture of Grandma Pat because she is um, she's at least a segue into what we'll talk about today with uh, Matthew chapter 4. Um, Grandma Pat was faithful in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm guessing that for any of you that know Grandma Pat very well, you know that she was faithful in her hospitality. So if you were traveling through southern Illinois and she happened to find out, then you were staying at her house. Uh, She was faithful in her hospitality in that if you were near her house and it was um, within six months of Christmas you would be having cookies, whether that was six months after or before. Irrelevant. You're going to have cookies from Grandma Pat, right? She was faithful uh, to steward her home and her resources, and she was a generous woman. She was also faithful, and this is where we get to our text, she was faithful to, uh, to know Satan's tricks, to avoid temptation. And the way that I know that she was faithful is that uh, two ways. Later in life, not as faithful, triggered pretty easily. Ask me how I know. Great grandkids really set her off sometimes. And it was when she thought they were disobeying a parent. So uh, she'd step right in there. Uh, But when I was a grandkid, she had three kids and seven grandkids. When I was a grandkid, this is how I know she was faithful to just avoid sin entirely. Her kitchen and dining room and living room were set such that grandkids could do laps, like horses on a track or dogs on a track. And laps did we ever do. Seven of us. And it was loud and annoying, and she's trying to prepare whether it was Christmas or Thanksgiving or another birthday meal. She never once threw a kitchen utensil or appliance at us. She was utterly faithful to avoid temptation. That's what we're looking at today. Um, We're looking at Jesus and Satan's uh, temptation of him because no one ever wakes up and says, today I'm going to be an alcoholic, or today... I'm going to become addicted to a substance. Or today, I'm going to take out a home equity line, go to the boat, and put it all on black, right? No one wakes up and says, I'm going to cheat on my wife today, destroy my family, and break her heart. No one wakes up and says that. It's just a gradual thing that seems to happen without us even knowing. So we want to become wise to five of Satan's tricks, five of Satan's tactics to catch us in sin. Five ways that he tempts us. Satan's super good at this. He's like, he's tactical, like measured, calculated, and he's practiced at that. It's almost like he's like an assassin or special forces or like a toddler who's been told that they can't have another cookie, right? Super stealth, right? And some of those toddlers are not quite as stealth really, but if you just imagine a sniper who has to make a super long-range shot, and they have to account for, like, wind speed, right? And they have to know when to take that shot exactly. Maybe even, like, the rotation of the earth. Super calculated. One of Jesus' closest friends described him as a lion who's prowling for someone he could devour. And I don't know about you, but I really want to avoid waking up one day and looking like I decided to blow my life up, right? Right? So we have to be wise to his tactics because he seeks to compromise our faithful relationship with God by getting us to sin, by getting us to somehow reduce our faith in God, maybe place it in ourself, maybe place it in some stuff, maybe place it in another person, maybe place it even in a false interpretation of God's Word. But fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ— can understand, can become aware of, can recognize these five tricks that Satan uses to tempt us to sin. So in Matthew chapter 4, I want to pray and then let's begin. Our Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts this morning through your word, able to divide to joints and marrow by the power of your Holy Spirit, who guides us into truth, to your gathered body, the church, who represents you as a light to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Satan, this is very interesting to note, right, kind of where we are in the life of Jesus. We're at the beginning of Matthew chapter four, and Jesus' life didn't have scenes that came up and said Matthew chapter four, right? But let's just say he was at the time that his ministry had been inaugurated. He had been, if you say it in Old Testament terms, anointed to his ministry. Just rewind real quick back there into chapter three, verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, Rod, you won't have this. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, what is Satan's response? We're now in chapter 4. Satan's response immediately is to challenge who Jesus is, right? We'll see this. But first, let's get to Satan's first tactic. His first tactic is to find us, to find Jesus, to find us alone or, or just isolated. Maybe not entirely alone. He's even happy with isolated, I think that we can see this throughout Scripture. I'm not going to say that it's every single time. And the only way he does it, you you could be tempted right here to pull out your phone and start scrolling through Marketplace, right? I mean, there's got to be a deal out there to be had today, right? We can be tempted anywhere. But he loves to do it when we're alone. You can remember Noah after the flood, drunk in his tent, alone, right? Until he wasn't, right? You can remember um, Potiphar's wife after Joseph. She did that while she was alone with him, right? You can remember King David. Remember, most of the army was at war and King David was alone on his rooftop, right? You can see that Jesus here is alone and you can see that Adam and Eve were isolated, right? So we'll say that Satan's number one trick, his first trick, is to try to find us isolated or alone and then to work on us. I think it's interesting that, that he does it that way. And I can't tell you exactly why he does it, but I can tell you that in Scripture we see all sorts of examples about why it's important for the church or Christians to be together. Jesus says that wherever two or more are gathered in my name, what? There I am with them, right? So there's something to the gathering, right? It's the, literally our identity. is not these walls, but again, it's us. We're the church. You also might remember a cord of three strands, not easily broken, right? You remember when the the widows were not being served well in the early church? Did the apostles call, call a meeting and say, all right, I want you guys to pick one person and they'll take care of everything. Did they say that? No, they said, choose from among yourselves those who are full of the Spirit, right? So multiple people gathered together to take care of that ministry. In the multitude of counsel, there's wisdom, not in going to ask one person, the multitude, right? And then uh, this is my, my favorite proof text for this, okay? I don't think I'm proof texting. If you, you do, we need a conversation. Hebrews 10.35, uh, that famous verse that anytime we're going to talk about life groups, I'm going to say that verse, right? Do not give up gathering together, right? But encourage one another to get together. Now, the writer of Hebrews, he's writing that to a group of people who are literally giving up being together. Like they're not even sure they believe in Jesus anymore. So I think that those are kind of some proofs that Satan is gonna to try to either isolate or entirely separate us from the body of Christ, because that is Satan's number one tactic. And his fully devoted followers we can recognize his tactics. So let's go on to tactic number two. Satan appealed to the body or the desires or uh, the lust of the flesh. And this is in Matthew chapter four, verse three. The tempter came to him and said, if, see again, he's attacking Jesus' identity. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So Satan's Second tactic is to then tempt our flesh, to tempt our flesh. It's not a sin to be hungry, right? Some of you might be arguing in your mind right now with me and thinking, every time my spouse is hungry, there's a sin. That's hangry, okay? Hangry is entirely different than hungry. Hangry is what we become, and Snickers has got a whole marketing campaign on hanger, right? But we're talking about hungry. It's not a sin, but Satan wants us to think And look what he's doing. If you you look at this chapter 4, verse 3, he's challenging the identity of Jesus, but he's using a specific tactic. And the tactic is hunger, flesh, stomach, I would call it, right? But Satan's, the thrust of what he's saying essentially is, is God really, has he really got the best in mind for you? Has he really got, maybe, maybe, is he holding back just a little bit? Something that you really deserve, right? Like you're hungry now, right, Jesus? I think we also see this in the garden with Adam and Eve, and I think uh, I, I'll just ask you this question: Do you ever uh, fill in the blank here? Like I'm feeling really uh, <clears throat> I'm feeling really tired, so caffeine or so oh. Uh, something else that gets you really excited. I'm not really sure, right? But something that's going to bring you back up, right? Uh, take a nap at work. I don't know. Um, I'm feeling really stressed. So some other substance, be it alcohol, be it food, be it caffeine, be it an addiction to an illicit drug. I, I don't know. But I'm feeling really something. And I'm now going to trust a thing. It's, it, you, can you see that in our hearts... It's building a little tiny idol. It's shifting our faith just ever so slightly. But it's not like we wake up one day and say, nah, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. That's not how Satan works. He's tricky. His number one trick, isolate, right? Isolate, maybe even find us alone. His number two trick is to work on the lust or the desire of the flesh, his third trick, the, the pride of life. I like to call this uh, prove it. I had a friend in uh, grade school who uh, made some extraordinary claims that would really incite my friends and I to be like, oh, I want to see it. I want to see it. Prove it, okay? Because he would make the most absurd claims that you've ever heard in your life, and it's because he wanted us to think something more of him than we did at the time. And it was weird because his response was always, yeah, bet me bucks, ask my dad. And we're like, that, that definitely doesn't prove it, right? But Satan's third attempt, his third attempt is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Did, a, did anyone here have a, like a childhood enemy? You don't have to raise your hand. You can just think about this person. Uh, let's not talk about today, but talk about a childhood enemy. Did you have a childhood enemy? And then was your childhood enemy such that your childhood friend knew about the beef, right? Your childhood friend knew that, let's say, Jimmy, Jimmy was your childhood enemy, right? And all your friends knew it. Did any of you guys have something like that set up? I asked that question because Jesus had that. Jesus had an enemy. We have the same enemy. We share an enemy, Satan, right? But Jesus had a best friend. His name was John. And he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, I just want us to get this mental picture. Jesus and John were so close that John knew Jesus' enemy this well, that he pulled out these three things about how the enemy works. He says, for everything in in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So John is outlining three of these for us right here, and we're talking about the pride of the of life. Now, Jesus warned against, uh, th- these are who I think were committing a pride of life sin. Jesus warned against those who wanted to stand on a street corner to pray. And I'm talking about the intersection of a street, not the edge of a street where you just walk by or ride your camel by, but the intersection where you'd have to stop and negotiate other people coming through. That's where they stood to pray so that people would see how very spiritually powerful they were. Um, I'm trying to think in my own personal life. I know that this has happened. I'm big on pride of life. I think of two different arenas um, in my own life. One of them, not so much right now. The other one, so much right now, okay? One of them, I used to love to just flex, right? And I need to get to that place again. But I used to love to be the guy who lifted the most, right? I, I know that so many of you guys can relate to that when you work out with people like Brad Spine and Chris Carpenter, just lifting more than them all the time, and you're just feeling really tough, right? I've never felt that. Okay, but... The way that I can tell you that this happens for me right now is I'm going to bring up like not just one Greek word, but like 50, right? Because I want you to know how super smart I am, right? I think that's the pride of life at work in me. When I succumb to that temptation, I want everybody to know how big brain Chris is today, right? And I don't know what that is for you. Um, I'm guessing that it's different for everybody, but something about uh, maybe I got this new job and I manage 500 employees, I'll have you know. Or, yeah, Rourke's been really tough because I have this $100 billion budget I need to manage. Maybe just these little subtle flexes that let everybody know that you are very powerful. Be that spiritually, be that mentally, be that physically, be that like fiscally, like at work and your job, very important. I'm a vice president, I'll have you know. Satan has lots of great tricks, and pride of life is a really big one for myself. But fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ can recognize Satan's tricks. We've got two more I want you guys to check out. We've covered isolated alone. We've covered appeal to the flesh, and we've covered pride of life. Remember Jesus' closest friend, John, he kind of picked three out for us, right? We'll get to his third one, but before we do, there's one that's right here in the text that we're already in. It's in this text right here that Satan just quoted to him. So I want to do this uh, together because the, Satan's fourth trick is to like mix or to twist scripture in a way that it's not intended to be used, right? Paul commends the Bereans for being great and that they went to check out the scriptures, Because this is a trick that's not just for Satan. Preachers can use this trick. Preachers can write books called Your Best Life Now, and that's a lie. The entire book, the whole gospel prosperity garbage is a lie. It tells you and I that we can live a life that's intended to be lived in heaven right now. That's a lie because it's a twisted scripture. So let's see how Satan twists scripture. Um, Rod, would you pull up Psalm uh, 91? And, and I want to, while he's getting that, I want to remind you guys, in Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there or you can trust me. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But he says to Adam and Eve, surely you'll not die, right? Right after Eve literally quoted the scripture to him, Satan directly challenges that scripture by saying, Surely you'll not. He introduces doubt into the very Scripture she, or Word of God at the time that she quoted to him, right? Satan introduces doubt, ultimately lies, because he twists Scripture. So I'm going to let, uh, let you guys follow along here or in your Bibles in Psalm 91, and I'm going to read the way that uh, Satan uses it. <clears throat> For he will condemn his angels concerning you to guard you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your feet, your foot, against a stone. So Satan, his fourth trick is to twist, alter, manipulate, insert doubt into the Scripture. And what you guys probably noticed is that, uh, go back to verse 11 for me, Ron. What you'll notice is that he omitted, in all your ways... And uh, man, just by way of some transparency here, I had to like really study this because I didn't get how this right here was connected, but here's what I discovered. Satan admitted that because Jesus said, this is John uh, 6, Jesus said that he should live by God's will alone. So Satan twists the scripture and Jesus' response is really smooth, but here's why that's not accurate. Here's how that's a temptation because Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven to do, uh, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. So, so Jesus is here to do only the will of his father, and Satan is now tempting him using scripture, misquoted, like he's omitted a little section there to make it sound just like he wants it to sound for Jesus, serves it up on a platter, and it's garbage because Satan is measured, he is tactical, he is practiced, and he is deadly, like deadly as a sniper, right? He is, de- he is prowling around like a roaring lion, okay? And he's got great tricks. He can even use Scripture. He tried Scripture with the Son of God. He's going to try it with us. But fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ can recognize these tricks. Let's go on to number five, our last trick that we're studying And I'll have you know, there's more tricks I discovered this morning, but we're not going to talk about them today. Uh, We're going to get to talk about this some more another day, but man, just as you read through Scripture, you're going to see more tricks that he uses, and I would love it if you shared them with me, because we're going to have to preach a sermon again someday, right? Maybe not here, but this is important information, is it not? Is it not helpful to know where Putin's got his row of tanks lined up somewhere in the Ukraine Of course it is, because we want to be not only offensive, but we want to be defensive. So we want to know the tactics of our enemy. This is our last one. This is one that Jesus' best friend, John, identified as either the desire or the lust of the eyes. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. See, Satan offers Christ like an easy way to become, uh, big quotes, big air quotes, a king of a kingdom. But what Satan's offering is like, it's false, right? It's a lie because he's a liar. Um, We do have to go into this just briefly, sort of theological. I don't see any way around it, so let's go through this together. Satan, for this current time, has at the minimum that I can discern, and I expect to learn more, okay? So if I'm misunderstanding this, you should talk to me. Satan has at the minimum influence over this, this whole earthly kingdom, this physical realm, okay? He has at the bare minimum influence, maybe control, okay? I don't know that it's 100% clear, but he has at the minimum influence. But, I mean, imagine the Lord's Prayer. Imagine Jesus' first words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? Same words John said. So the kingdom of heaven is coming. I don't want to say down. It's, it's coming, so it's in progress, but Satan still has, at the minimum, influence of this whole realm, okay? So, we're on to John 14, 30, and 31. This helps me at least a little bit understand why, because, man, if you're anything like me, you want to know why, right? Why? And Ultimately, I think that Christians over the centuries have decided, It's for the glory of God. Okay, that's a simple answer, right? I think it's also a true answer. Here's what Jesus says. I will not say much more to you. For the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, me, like Jesus is saying that. He has no hold over Jesus, right? But he comes so that the world, the world may learn that I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded. So it seems that there is, this permission granted to Satan by God, and if you read Job, you can see this at play, right? It seems that there's this permission, this certain amount of control that God has over the the earthly kingdom, even though the heavenly kingdom is on the way. And by the, the act of death on the cross and resurrection, Jesus has, let's just call it like the official title of king, right? It is just that he hasn't claimed it fully yet in the same place that we live right now, right? In this, this heaven and earth are still happening to come together. Not there yet, okay? I want to read from Psalms because this is where Satan is is tempting Jesus to take this, this shortcut, right? To get to become this this fake king of this little fake physical realm kingdom the earth right so here is what is promised by god in psalms 2 uh, i believe this is about jesus i have installed my king on zion my holy mountain i will proclaim the lord's decree he said to me you're my son today i have become your father ask me and i will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth your possession You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. See, that hasn't happened yet, right? We haven't had verse 9 happen yet. Have we? I mean, we just sang about this, right? Like, we haven't had a dude show up for an apocalyptic battle dressed in white, which tells me, like, he ain't planning to get hurt, right? Who wears white to a battle? I don't know. Jesus does, right? But then we have this kind of evil measured, calculated, deadly, roaring lion running around with influence and power and control over us in the meantime. And listen, friends, brothers, sisters, all I can tell you is that what I do understand very clearly is that if we collectively as a church can encourage one another to recognize these tactics that he has, and it employs them very, very skillfully to just shift our faith ever so slightly so that we try to take the shortcut, or we trust in our flesh, or maybe we think we'll just try a substance instead of a Savior, then he's effective. But if we can recognize those when he's doing it, and we can resist that, we can bring glory to God. We can help bring kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to this kingdom of earth. All right. Fully devoted followers can recognize five of Satan's tricks and by recognizing can then resist Satan's tricks. He likes to catch us alone. He likes to appeal to our stomach, to our flesh, to our sort of body needs. He likes to appeal to... Personally, my desire for power or the appearance that I'm extra brilliant or something like that. I'm not sure what it would be for you. But something like uh, maybe financially or spiritually, very spiritual. But the pride of life is what Jesus' best friend called that. He likes to appeal to our eyes and he loves to twist Scripture to try to shift our faith to something else. There's a movie called... uh, captive. And this movie tells the true story of a man who, who is on trial, but in his trial, he escapes, murders the judge, murders a court reporter, murders a sheriff, murders a federal agent, and is now on the run from law enforcement, breaks into a woman's house named Ashley Smith Robinson, and holds her hostage. I don't think That Brian Nichols woke up that day and decided that today, when I'm facing a judge for rape charges, I want to add four murders and kidnapping to that. I want to add grand theft auto to that. I don't think Brian Nichols woke up that morning thinking that, but I do think that he might have for a moment believed, I can just take a little shortcut here. I can just kind of skirt the system and I can get the easy way out, right? I think that none of, us, none of us are probably on trial for any of those sorts of charges, right? But in our everyday lives, as we live trying to be a light to the world, is it not true that we're, we're tempted by Satan every day, probably when we're isolated, to take that shortcut, to maybe just shift our faith a little bit, maybe just trust a substance instead of a savior, maybe, maybe to even misinterpret scripture so that we feel like, Our lifestyle is honoring to God. Brothers and sisters, I'm grateful that I got to share with you today. I have so much more to say, but it's going to be another Sunday because what we've talked about today is simply a defensive posture against an enemy who's attacking us. But all the way through this, we skipped verses where I'm sure the majority of you are aware, Jesus was on the offensive. Jesus used the word. And we're going to talk about the use of the word and how we use that to fight temptation when we gather again next time. I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity that you give us to open your word together and to see the way that the enemy operates, trying to shift our faith into something else by just offering something that looks okay. Maybe because we're alone. Maybe because our flesh wants it. Our pride wants it. Our eyes want it. Maybe because we're misunderstanding Scripture. Father, I'm praying that you would help each of us to be faithful and that we would be alert to our enemy's attempts to turn us against you ever so gradually. Father, we pray that you would give us this awareness for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, amen.